<laughs> Beefalo. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. It is the Grand Canyon of Texas, 120 miles cut through the Caprock Escarpment in the Texas Panhandle, rich with geological curiosities, teeming with wildlife, and steeped in thousands of years of history. This week we talk about the famous Paladura Canyon. But first, what is the hottest you have ever been in Texas? Well, I'll go first. Uh, that would be the summer of 81. Uh, it hit 119 in Seymour, which was about 20 miles from where we lived at the time. So it was obviously pretty close to the same temperature in McGargle, where we lived. It was too hot to go to Seymour to go to the pool. Uh, nothing would grow that summer except for goat head stickers, which if you ever stepped on one of those, that's the worst thing you can ever step on. Uh, it was absolutely miserable. I think that was the first time I can remember that we were not allowed to go outside without shoes. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, I've stepped on a Lego in deep shag carpet before. <laughs> yeah, but a Lego is not covered in filthy dirt that gets infected. It was a Lego, Sean, in deep shag carpet. That sounds that sounds miserable, by the way. Summer in West Texas sounds miserable, period. You know, I don't know objectively what was hottest that I've been, because it, it's been hot a lot in Texas. Um, but I do recall a uh, particular Sammy Hagar concert at the Starplex. Uh, tickets that I won on uh, Q102 back in the day. Um, yep. And my friend uh, Mr. Zolkowski here was there with me. Um, I remember that being pretty hot because I was completely, utterly sunburnt from uh, the day out on the lake. I don't remember if it was the day before or that same day, but I was in pretty rough shape. But there's no way I was going to miss that concert, uh, even though I felt like my face was melting as we sat out there on the lawn waiting for the sun <laughs> to go down. Well, there's some there's some history to that concert. That was a that was a crazy show because that was supposed to be uh, that was his apology for the time when. They uh they had to leave a concert early in Dallas, but uh, yeah, that was '97 when we saw that. Um, and I remember that concert. And I didn't tell the story just because the the most rock and roll Sam Hagar thing I saw that day was there was a, oh, yeah. a fellow with one leg <laughs> in his cutoff jeans, and he was yep. jumping up and down on his one good leg, and he was waving his crutches in the air while they played uh, "Get on Your Bad Motor Scooter and Ride." Yeah. Didn't you guys? Didn't you say that Sammy Hagar told an anecdote about oh, playing Texas Jam at that he did. at that a venue where Tommy Shaw walked up to him and said, he "said I'm done, I, Mr. Rob, I'm done with this, Mr. Roboto. I'm out of sticks. I'm done. I'm walking away." That so, was that was a that, moment. You guys came. You guys came home and told me that story, and I was, I was like, like, "Oh my god, Texas Jam." Starflex, oh my God. sticks, it was Mr. Roboto. It was something. <laughs> it was something to see. Well, you know, this concert love brings me back. Uh, yeah, I remember Hot Night, went to the Coca-Cola Starplex back when it was called that, and we uh, went to Aerosmith in 94. And it was like uh, a lot of loving an elevator. shipping dibba wow wow <laughs> uh, I tell you, you know, there were the, the it's, it's heat and summer's hard in Texas because it's like, I think back to 1981, the first time I heard Hot Girls in Love by Loverboy on C101 coming to you live on the airwaves from the Texas Riviera. But uh, probably hot, hot 87 
was really a hot summer. I was in Pearsall, and we were out in deep south Texas. And I remember I, um, for some reason, I was on the junior high track team. It was not good. Uh, I was a bad athlete as a child. But I remember I, I somehow had my shirt off, and I had, like, tripped and fell on my back into the long jump pit. And it really hurt, and I got up and I brushed it off, and I had all these like minor burns on my back from the sand of the scorching uh, sand. It was awful. It was a well over 100 degrees. It was a, you know, again, <laughs> there's a reason we have air conditioning these days. In, yes. In Texas, it gets hot. Very so, hot. So push pause, go to the kitchen, get yourself a big glass of lemonade or iced tea or just a big glass of water, something cool to drink. Because we're going to talk about the Paladura Canyon. Paladura Canyon is a canyon system of the Caprock Escarpment located in the Texas Panhandle near the cities of Amarillo and Canyon. It is the second largest canyon in the United States after the Grand Canyon, being roughly 120 miles long and having an average width of about 6 miles, but reaches a width of 20 miles in certain places. Its depth is around 820 feet, but in some locations the height of the canyon walls can reach 1,000 feet. Palo Duro in Spanish means hardwood due to the hardwood shrubs and trees found in the canyon. It has been named the Grand Canyon of Texas both for its size and for its dramatic geological features, including the multicolored layers of rock and steep mesa walls similar to those in the Grand Canyon. So uh, those of you who are geology nerds, uh, buckle up because the next couple of minutes just going to be all about you. So we're going to talk about the formation of the Paladura Canyon. So the canyon was formed by the Prairie Dog Town Fork of the Red River. Uh, and so the, if you look at a map of the Red River, it goes from the uh, Mississippi River uh, all the way up and forms the northern border of Texas. And then somewhere around the around right before you get to the part where the Panhandle goes up, it splits into two parts. So the southern part, the Prairie Dog Fork part, it is was the foundation of the Paladura Canyon. Now, this river originally wound across the level surface of the Llano Estacado of West Texas, which is the staked plains of the flat prairie of the Panhandle. It suddenly and dramatically runs off the Caprock Escarpment. The geological formations in this area were formed in the Permian era over 240 million years ago, and this formed the composition of the land. Significant uplift beginning in the Pleistocene era over two million years ago caused the erosion of the canyon itself as the creek and the river uh, cut through it. Most of the strata that are visible in the canyons were deposited during the Permian and Triassic periods. Now, from oldest to youngest, these formations are going to be... First formation is the Quartermaster Formation from the Permian era. This comprises the red lower slopes of the canyon. This layer was deposited in a shallow marine environment that alternated with dry tidal flats. The next formation is the Tecovis Formation. From the Triassic Age, this layer consists of shale, siltstone, and sandstone. It was created by deposits from streams and swamps and contains the fossils of phytosaurs, amphibians, and fish. The Trujillo Formation, and this is also from the Triassic, and is harder than the underlying Tecovis, and forms many of the canyon's ledges. It is composed of coarse sandstone, and river cross bedding indicates its deposition in a stream environment. Fossils are rare in this layer. And the last layer was the Ogallala Foundation. Now this is from the late Miocene to the early Pliocene. It forms the cliffs and ledges at the very top of the canyon. Uh, the Ogallala Formation is part of the is part is actually part of the plains wide uh, structure that contains the Ogallala Aquifer, 
which is an underground water uh, source that basically provides water to most of the plains. So this layer is composed of sandstone, siltstone, and conglomerate eroded from the late Cenozoic uplift of the Rocky Mountains. Now in this layer, fossils of saber-toothed cats, bone-crushing dogs, mastodons, horses, long-necked camels. Uh, yes, there were camels in Texas before the U.S. Army brought them over. Uh, rhinoceroses and tortoises are all present in the Ogallala Foundation. Notable canyon formations include caves and hoodoos, or tall, thin spires of rock, as well as rock piles and massive boulders. There are also buttes and mesas. One of the best known and one of the major signature features of the canyon is called Lighthouse Rock, which is a spire that juts out from the canyon wall and resembles a towering lighthouse. There's also a curious feature on the rim of the canyon that seems to resemble the head of a monkey and is named appropriately. Is it called the monkey's head? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Cabeza de monkey. Cabeza de monkey. The natural vegetation in the canyon consists of a variety of grasses and other xerophytic vegetation, such as prickly pear, yucca, mesquite, and juniper. Cottonwood, willow, and salt cedar grow along the banks of the river that runs through the canyon. Mesquite and other shrub plants grow up and down the slopes of the wall. There is abundant game in the canyon, including pronghorn, mule deer, jackrabbits, field mice, squirrels, javelinas, and wild pigs, coyotes and wolves, even bobcats and mountain lions. The usual range of desert lizards and snakes abound, and a wide range of birds from quail, prairie hen, doves, cardinals, hawks, owls, eagles, and vultures. Wild turkey also abound throughout the canyon. Of course, there is also a vast variety of bugs everywhere, and at one point, abundant river trout and perch. And because of the availability of wood, water, game, wild edible plants, raw materials for weapons and tools, and shelter from the harsh winter winds, Paladur Canyon was a favorite campsite for both prehistoric people and later Indian tribes. The earliest known inhabitants, who date from the period between 10,000 and 5,000 BC, were big game hunters of the now extinct giant bison and mammoths. Archaeologists have found projectile points, stone tools, mortar holes, paintings, carvings, and other artifacts of these and later prehistoric people at numerous sites throughout the canyon. The first European explorers to discover the canyon were members of the Coronado Expedition, who visited the canyon in 1541. Pre-horse culture Apache lived in the canyon at the time, but they were later displaced by Comanche and Kiowa tribes. They had the advantage of owning horses brought over by the Spanish. They also had contact with traders from New Mexico, called Comancheros, who frequently visited the canyon's camps. A United States military team under Captain Randolph B. Marcy mapped the canyon in 1852 during their search for the headwaters of the Red River. There was little to no white settlement in the canyon or in much of the panhandle because of the presence of the Comanche. The Buffalo Hunter settlement of Adobe Walls, some 115 miles away, and the site of two battles fought by the Comanche, one with the army in 1864 and one the hunters themselves in 1874. The canyon itself remained a central stronghold for the Comanche. In late 1874, as the Red River War between the United States and the Comanche and Kiowa tribes raged, U.S. Army Colonel Randall S. McKenzie was sent to remove the Indians to reservations in Oklahoma. The result was the Battle of Palo Duro Canyon, where McKenzie's troops, along with Texas Rangers under Charles Goodnight, attacked a large Comanche camp within the canyon. Only a dozen Comanche were killed. Between over 1,500 of their ponies, though, were captured and later slain. 
The loss of the Palo Duro camp meant the loss of the Indians' safe haven and all of their winter supplies, but more importantly, their source of mobility. Without sufficient mounts or supplies, the tribe could not hold out over the winter, and many returned to the Fort Sill Reservation by November 1874. The battle thus marked the final major engagement of the Red River War and was one of the last battles of the Texas-Indian Wars. After the end of the Red River War, the Panhandle in western Texas were safe for settlement for the white settlers. The first to tap into this land and the canyon itself was the Cattle Rancher. In 1876, former Ranger Captain Charles Goodnight and a wealthy Scot named John Adair established the J.A. Ranch in Palo Duro Canyon, which was built up over two years as a seemingly crazy quilt property in and around a 75-mile stretch of Palo Duro Canyon. Being familiar with the area, Goodnight knew the areas with good land and water, and so he purchased accordingly. Goodnight was sort of the managing partner of the ranch. The first herd from the ranch was driven by Goodnight in 1878 to Dodge City, Kansas. In 1882, he built what is thought to have been the Panhandle's first barbed wire drift fence across the, across the canyon bed above the home ranch, which separated the purebred cattle, on which he used the JJ brand, from the main JA herd, which was not a purebred cattle brand. He also kept a buffalo herd, which he sought to cross with cattle to produce the cattle and we talked about Charles Goodnight in a previous episode. I prefer the more modern term, beefalo. <laughs> beefalo. Purchases over the years expanded the ranch from 12,000 to 1.3 million acres, spreading over six counties. Goodnight helped manage the ranch until 1888, when he was bought out of his partnership following the death of his partner Adair in 1885. Today, the J.A. Ranch remains in family hands and is the largest privately owned cattle ranch remaining in the Panhandle. Much of the land it formerly held is now part of the state park, but the ranch does maintain the small herd of longhorn cattle that roam freely. Through the turn of the century, the canyon remained in private hands. Other parts of the canyon over time had also been purchased by ranchers, farmers, or failed mining and prospecting initiatives. Despite this, the canyon became an increasingly popular tourist spot for local residents, many from Canyon City, founded near the west rim of the canyon. One of the first acts of the Canyon City Commercial Club after its organization in December 1906 was to pass a resolution asking for a national park in the Upper Canyon. In 1908, and again in 1911 and 1915, Congressman John H. Stevens of Wichita Falls introduced a bill calling for the establishment of a, quote, National Forest Reserve and Park in Palo Duro Canyon. But disputes between the agricultural and interior departments, along with the unique problems of Texas lands, prevented its passage. From 1924 to 1929, the Palo Duro Park Association, composed of representatives of 15 Panhandle counties, worked with the State Parks Board to build momentum for creating a state park in Palo Duro Canyon. Boosters from both the Amarillo and Canyon Chambers of Commerce hosted automobile excursions to the canyon's west rim in the summer and fall of 1830. Presumably, this was to drum up interest in the park. Uh, Fred Emery, a Chicago businessman, actually initiated the park by making arrangements through his company to purchase 15,000 acres of canyon land at the western edge of the park. He agreed to transfer most of it to the state by means of a loan to the State Parks Board, from the Federal Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which was going to repay him from the park operation income. But when the National Park, when the National park Service designated the proposed Palo Duro Canyon 
as a promising civilian conservation as a promising New Deal Civilian Conservation Corps project site, this loan became unnecessary. The legislature passed and Governor Miri, Governor and the legislature passed the measure and Governor Miriam A. Ma Ferguson signed it. And this was the essential act to facilitate the transfer, which was completed in 1933. And this is actually very similar to what was occurring at the same time in the Big Bend area. And we talked about that in the previous episode, although that became a national park rather than a state park. As the Great Depression heightened in March 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt authorized the establishment Franklin D. Roosevelt authorized the establishment of four CCC camps of about 200 men each to work in the canyon for a period of five months. The park acreage was increased to its present size of 16,000 acres to better accommodate the crews. They built El Coronado Lodge on the rim of the canyon and six other cabins of native stone. In addition, they added a water system, several bridges, and concrete river crossings, and various improvements to the roadways and trails. In all, the federal government and National Park Service spent about $2 million on CCC construction. In 1936, a three-person parks advisory board was set up by the State Parks Board to govern Paladuro Park, and it continued until the expiration of its term. The CCC camps remained until December 1937. From that time on, tourism in the park gradually increased. During the 1940s, the state was able to purchase the rest of the Upper Canyon with money obtained through a public bond issue, which is paid off through interest fees. Journalist John L. McCarty and his wife assumed operation of the park concessions in 1949 and were instrumental in importing deer, buffalo, and Texas longhorns. The Goodnight Memorial Trail was paved in 1951 as Park Road 5. The Pioneer Amphitheater was completed in 1964. The Texas Highway 217 from Canyon is the most direct route to the park. The eight-mile drive from the rim to the canyon floor follows the approximate path that Charles Goodnight took when he established his old home ranch in 1876. This drops 800 feet in slightly over a mile. The herd of longhorn cattle, which is the offspring of the old Fort Griffin herd, actually grazes on the rim. The stone entrance station and a chimney that was once part of a recreation hall are the most vivid reminders of the CCC days. The El Coronado Lodge has been remodeled and enlarged into an interpretive center depicting the canyon's history, geology, flora, and fauna, and it has a really lovely uh, glassed-in overlook. Along with overnight camping and picnicking facilities, there are riding stables, hiking trails to the lighthouse, and other canyon landmarks, the Goodnight Trading Post, which is a gift shop and concession stand, and there's also a covered wagon ride that follows the route of the Sad Monkey Railroad. This is a defunct miniature train ride named for the geological formation on the nearby Jurassic Peak. A sky ride operated at the park for a short time, and today an outside company operates a zip line over part of the canyon. Historical markers and a reconstruction of what is thought to have been Goodnight's original dugout abode have been erected. One of the most popular attractions is Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Paul Green's musical drama, Texas, presented each summer at the Pioneer Amphitheater. This historical and musical drama premiered on July 1, 1966, and has continued each summer through the present, making Texas, quote, the best-attended outdoor history drama in the nation. The family-friendly show is performed every Tuesday through Sunday from June through August. It is set against an authentic tapestry of history, and the show's fictional characters bring to life the stories, struggles, and triumphs of the settlers of the Texas Panhandle in the 1800s.
Texas, was born in 1960 when Canyon resident Margaret Harper read an article in Reader's Digest about Green. Green had recreated the histories of several regions of America in what he called, quote, symphonic dramas featuring pageantry and music. Mrs. Harper began corresponding with Green about the land, people, and beauty of Palo Duro Canyon. As Harper reached out to friends and colleagues in Canyon, interest in the prospect of an outdoor theater began to grow. And soon, a small group of Canyon families funded the first trip for Green to come out from his North Carolina home to the Panhandle later that year. Now, according to those in attendance at that first meeting, Green immediately dedicated himself to the project of bringing the history of the High Plains to the stage. The show's highlights include special fire and water effects, but the best effects are the ones made by nature in the setting itself. The story begins with, quote, the rider on the rim, a cowboy brandishing the Lone Star flag while riding his horse at full speed only a few feet from the edge of the 800-foot cliffside. The show then kicks off with an overture featuring dancing and the singing of old Texas favorites before launching into the two-act plot. The music, dancing, choreography, and direction of the production came from various departments of nearby West Texas State College, now West Texas A&M University. Most, if not all, of the cast and crew, as well as the staff at the theater, are young students from a wide variety of backgrounds. Starting in 2001, the show was edited for greater historical accuracy and to revitalize decreasing attendance. In 2003, a new script called Texas Legacies premiered and ran through the show's 40th anniversary in 2005. In 2006, however, the original Texas returned to the Pioneer Amphitheater by popular demand. In recent years, the show has added an encore performance in salute to America's veterans and active service military members, often honoring Panhandle residents who are on active duty. The show itself is produced by the Texas Panhandle Heritage Foundation, which is a not-for-profit organization governed by the all-volunteer board of directors who give their time, energy, money, and expertise to preserve Texas Panhandle history through theater. Families and individuals across the Panhandle and the nation give generously to help make this educational and historical project a reality each season. As well as being an evening of entertainment, Texas serves as an ongoing theater laboratory, which educates young performers and technicians from across the U.S. Today, the performance is a highlight of any visit to the park. Visitors can also take backstage tours and a catered chuck wagon barbecue dinner. Uh, if you're wanting to go to the, the, the Paladura Canyon, uh, this is something great to do. So this last week, uh, my family and I uh, took a trip to West Texas to visit my uh, uh, where my, see where my dad grew up and, and wink, which we've talked about in way back in what episode boomtown three, wasn't it? It's a or, long time ago. A long time ago. We talked about this, the town of wink and we went to a town reunion. Uh, but we also decided, uh, because wink only can only was able to take up about half a day, uh, a day's worth of our vacation. Uh, we decided to go and stay in Canyon at a, at a house, an Airbnb house, and we did some things around the Panhandle area, and we definitely wanted to go to Paladura Canyon to see Texas. My mom had been to Paladura Canyon back in college over 40 years ago, uh, but uh, and Dad had been there once a long time ago. But we none of us had ever seen the Texas play. We'd never, and I'd never been to the canyon. So we took our kids, uh, my wife and our kids, and my mom and dad, and we went. And spent the afternoon at Paladuro, and it was not 120 degrees, but it was 116, so it was really hot. Um, 
but it was a fascinating and amazing experience to see this canyon, which we've I've read about and heard about all these years, um, to actually be there in the presence and to be to take that switchback. There's a switchback road uh, that goes down uh, from the rim down to the to the the bottom of the canyon, and it is it is really steep. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Um, <laughs> Pretty wild. So, so the difference between Paladero Canyon, I'll talk about that, and then we we did go to the play. But the difference between Paladero Canyon and the Grand Canyon is Grand Canyon. If you've ever been, is is massive. It's it is probably twice the size of Paladero Canyon. It's, it's really huge. But you, there's no road that goes into the canyon. You, if you want to go down to the canyon, you got to either take a donkey, or you got to walk it, or hike it, or run it. Right. So uh, that's or you got to ride a river rapid through through the Colorado river, the, the grant, the Palier Canyon has a road that goes into the Canyon. So you actually get to be at the base at the bottom of the Canyon and see the geologic formations from, from the, from the bottom. So that was really, really neat to see. Um, uh, the overlooks are amazing. There are, there are very interesting things. There's, there's still some old, uh, broken down cabins that you see and some sheep pens and cattle pens here and there. Uh, so they've they've kind of left a lot of the history kind of kind of sitting out there. So that was really neat to to really see. Um, and then we saw the play. We, we had the chuck wagon dinner, and it was pretty good. And we saw the play. Um, there is a uh, a gentleman who's part of the play, and he actually plays Quanta Parker because there's a scene where there's a hoedown, and then the, the Comanche show up, and it's right after the Comanche have been forced back in the reservation. But Quanta Parker comes and makes a plea for. Uh, makes a plea for, for unity between the whites and the the, 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 the Comanche and, and the Indians. And, and the man who plays it is a gentleman who is actually a descendant of Quanta Parker. So that's, that's pretty neat. To, and he does he gives a little presentation before the show. Yeah, he gives a little little talk before the show about Quanta Parker. And then he has he has some CDs because he and his, his partner or his wife, I'm not sure who it is, but she has some singing CDs. And then he... Uh, uh, he takes pictures with people, so the kids take pictures with him. It's really neat. Um, but the show itself, so it is definitely a product of of a, of the early 1960s. It is is that very dated, uh, stagey Broadway. You know, it's not as good as Oklahoma, right? As far as you know, the quality of music, but it's it's that same type of really thea. It's very theatrical. It's very over the top. Uh, my kids loved it. They thought it was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. Um, and the only thing they didn't like was there's a scene where they've got this tree stump that they've got set up on the rim of the canyon to explode right at the end of the uh, first act because it's simulating a lightning strike. And both of my children were reduced to puddles of of, of shrieking tears uh, <laughs> because of that because we had really close seats, but. Uh, it was just, it was, but it was very neat. It was very, very, very fascinating, and and just the, the the fact that these you know hundred or hundred and twenty or so college kids uh, put on this prof- this really professional production every night or, or almost every night for the entire summer in the heat of the summer in one hundred and sixteen degree temperatures is is pretty pretty astounding. So, well, that's really cool. Um... Yeah, I, I you were <clears throat> sending pictures and telling us about kind of this whole trip back to the homeland. Uh, I, you know, I thought for the longest time that West Texas was just a myth, but uh, 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was I was trying to I would have live tweeted the whole thing, except when I when we as soon as we went over the rim of the canyon, all signal was lost on their cell phones. So took a step back in time to a time before cell phones. Yeah, well, you know, now that you know, you've spent time on Mars, you can tell us what it's all about. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty cool, uh, you know, that there's this big geological formation. I know we talked a bit about the caverns. We did a whole episode on Texas caverns, and we talked about that. I think it's easy to miss the fact that, like, there's a lot more to Texas than just what, you know, people get on the surface of it. So uh, I've not been to the Paladuro Canyon. I've not really not really experienced the majesty of West Texas as much as I probably should have. I've flown over it and landed in El Paso a few times, um, but I've never actually had to, you know, muddle through it. God, have you been out there? No, no, I have not been. In fact, I was thinking as you're describing the uh, the show and everything, I kept thinking that, man, all, I, all I've seen um, is the uh, poor, um, not really adequate uh, sort of um homage if you will to that big show that uh they they have at fiesta texas oh which is yeah, more yeah. of a laser light show uh, you know it, it's it's still a celebration of texas culture right. and you know that sort of thing but it is not the over-the-top um classic sort of um outdoor theater presentation that they have at paladero which i you know now that we've talked about it um i, I definitely need to put that back on my list of something to go check out so well, uh- as a person, you are a person, Scott, who is who likes who enjoys going camping in yes. the outsides. Yes. I, I do not like sleeping where there's not central air and heat, uh, so <laughs> I am not a person who enjoys camping. But well, I would I'd, say I would I'd, say you would definitely enjoy because the 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 the, the amphitheater is walking distance from several of the campgrounds. So you could you could actually go down and have a full camping vacation and go to the the, the performance uh, and enjoy yourself. So uh, yeah. Um, well, I definitely definitely think that uh, I would um, if I did choose to camp there, I would not do it when it's 115 degrees. No, no, no. No, the, the problem is, is that the only time the play is going on is in the summer. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, several so. people that I've talked to have said they have. I've talked to several people who said, "Oh, I love Paladier Canyon. It's great." In November or February. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It, it's a little rough. So, it, it for for the for if you're going to go just to see the performance, it's it's worth it for a day trip and or a car trip through through the canyon. That's that's really it's really cool to do that. If you drove a motorcycle. That would be a really cool trip down there because there was a guy we met who had driven his, he was driving his motorcycle across country and he decided to swing through the canyon and he, he loved it. So See, see, here's the thing when I think of the Paladuro Canyon and it probably wasn't even filmed there, but remember the terrible Lone Ranger movie from the 70s? Um, I don't yeah. remember it being terrible, but I, I have do fond memories of seeing that movie as a child. I don't think I've watched it since like I saw it in the theater with my dad. Um, Richard Mulligan as Custer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the one. And uh, there's a that big shootout in a canyon, and I just, for some reason, always thought, well, that's got to be the big Paladuro Canyon. Like, I always just thought that that was, like, there's one canyon in Texas, it's got to be that one. It was well, probably filmed it, in New Mexico or something, but... Yeah, if you recall, Mike, uh, there was that scene in Texas Rising that we covered extensively uh, uh, a couple I, I, of years ago. 
I have where, a I have a big blank spot in my memory from that. Well, if you recall, there's a scene where they show Gonzalez, quote unquote Gonzalez, and they are they, it is the Paladura Canyon. They show the Paladura Canyon as the coastal town of Gonzalez, so the the south central Texas mm. town of Gonzalez. Mm. Yeah, so, we gotta work yeah. on that. Mm. Well, that's okay, because a lot of people from the History Channel are listening to this, and they're going to call us for any other textures-related history things they do. What I what I find is fun about though about the Paladar Canyon also is 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 that as I was there and I was going through looking at the history, looking at the the center uh, with the inter- the interpretive center, what I was struck by it's really circles back to this show is and just writing this episode. Uh, there's at least four up, three or four episodes that we have referenced in this episode, in in that connect to Paladura. We've had an episode of Charles Goodnight. We've had an episode on Quanta Parker. Uh, we've had an episode on Adobe Walls. We've had an episode on on West Texas and on the Boomtown. So, you know, we've we've talked about we've had we had an episode about the Comanche, about the people, the Comanche people. So. We these this is this Paladar Canyon, like so many things in Texas, touches so many many of the subjects that we've discussed or the subjects that we have to touch this thing. So There's sad punch, monkey railroad. Punching up sad I mean monkey. Hey folks, it's summertime. So put on your favorite podcast, load up the car, get the kids in the back seat, and go see some beautiful pieces of Texas. Maybe Paladero Canyon. Yeah, drive for eight hours from Dallas <laughs> to get there. <laughs> God bless you and your family all crammed into the family truckster. Oh, my God. Yes, that was fun. Fun times. That wraps things up for today. You can find links and notes from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to Brainstaple and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I am Scotticus. You love this show, you love Texas, and you love mystical rock formations of the past. So tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes about what we're doing, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.